Right, continuing with the story of David and Goliath, and from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Goliath just issued his challenge, his ungodly challenge, and the people are all terrified. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off his sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued us from the poor of the lion rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over, and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Philistines returned from chasing the Philistines, sorry, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, <clears throat> with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Good morning, church. So, David and Goliath. If there is one thing that we love in our culture today, it is certainly that hero or action movie. Uh, Marvel movies dominate our theatres and have for many years full of heroes who come and save the day. And if you watch any of these things or read the story of David and Goliath, the plot always seems to be the same. We have this villain or problem that arises that seemingly comes and rocks our tranquility by threatening the very existence of the planet as we now know it. A problem so gloomy and threatening that it just begs for a a superhero to come along and save the day. Uh, But before Superman, Tony Stark or the Hulk there existed the quintessential 
hero's story found here in David and Goliath. Unlike modern superhero movies, David may not be able to fly, nor Goliath be able to shoot down his enemies with lasers and rockets. But what the David and Goliath narrative lacks, although it lacks in superpowers, it makes up for it in raw originality and uh, reality, being a story that actually happened in human history. It's a story that's so memorable, it is one of Scripture's most well-known uh, stories uh, that we that culture knows. Even somewhat today, in a culture that doesn't, by and large, know the Bible as well as generations past. I think Aussie culture in particular loves this narrative because we so readily identify with David, the underdog. Uh, But such familiarity brings with it some dangers. First, as we consider this story afresh today, uh, what we have in mind might be actually retold uh, accounts of the narrative rather than what's actually written in Scripture. So it's helpful that we've, again, taken the time to reread the whole story. Secondly, the core meaning of the, the story here of David and Goliath, the key lesson that we take away, is unfortunately so often misunderstood, even amongst Christians. Because our culture so readily identifies itself with David, we can easily miss the clear gospel uh, message and focus in the passage. Thirdly, familiarity can produce spiritual dullness. We can easily say, yeah, yeah, I've, I know that lesson already. At this point, it is good to remember that Scripture is like a flowing river that never dries up and just keeps on giving water and life. As such, our desire, our spiritual desire, ought to be to come and drink once more from Scripture's bottomless well of life. Declaring love for God's Word, in Psalm 119 verse 20 it says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Later in that same psalm from verse 97 it says, Oh how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it it is ever before me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So we can come back to the original story again, once again to David and Goliath, with a similar attitude, knowing that God can speak afresh today, uh, right before us now. And so with that in mind, uh, I'd like to come afresh to this narrative, this epic narrative. And as we do that, I'd just like to offer a short prayer. So please do pray with me now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, as we've already prayed today, we want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this uh, epic narrative that you've blessed us with uh, this morning, that we're able to read once again of this story of David and Goliath. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider this afresh today, that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that we would understand what you would have us learn from this passage. I pray, Lord, as we consider uh, and grapple with this once more, that uh, you would show us again our need for you, our sin, and, yeah, really the gospel that we need to hear once more through your son, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.
So before we consider what we can learn, again, from this narrative, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time reconsidering the backstory. So what, what is the backstory here? As we read, it begins with this legendary standoff between the armies of the Philistines and the army of God's people, Israel, each eyeballing each other from two separate mountains with a valley between them. Out of the camp of the Philistines waltzes this imposing figure, Goliath. Arrayed in all his glorious and heavy armor, he taunts Israel, says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Let's not forget at this moment that there is actually another tall character in this narrative. It's King Saul, who just a few chapters earlier was introduced as being someone who stood above, head, head above anyone else. But rather than him being king leading his people to victory, he along with Israel were dismayed and greatly dis, uh, afraid at the sight of the Philistines and particularly Goliath. Instead, as we know in the story, this young shepherd boy, David, he's the one with just a sling and a stone. He comes along and defeats this giant, bringing a great victory for Israel that day. Where Saul and Israel failed, David shows tremendous courage, grit and faith to overcome seemingly impossible odds to bring victory. David's character in the narrative, it's so attractive and he overcomes such great odds that it's no wonder that we want to so readily identify ourselves with him. I wonder in life if you have come across a great challenge yourself that has felt a bit like a Goliath to you. Just attempting to write this sermon this week has felt like a bit of a personal Goliath. When we meet a great challenge in life and overcome it, doesn't it leave you feeling like you're on top of the world? You say to yourself, I achieved that. On the flip side, if a challenge is too great and it actually overwhelms you, you can easily be left feeling defeated, down in the dumps. You say to yourself in those moments, that problem, it's conquered me. So naturally, when we come to David and Goliath, we easily take away the core message, be like David, brave, heroic, And actually, before I scrunch up that main message and toss it out, let's actually acknowledge the truth that's in it. For Scripture does call us to have great faith, to show great courage and perseverance in how we trust God. Maybe you might think of God's call to Joshua and Israel to be strong and courageous back in the book of Joshua as they were heading in to possess the the promised land. Or, as we explored in the book of 1 Peter, Peter calls us to live holy lives in the face of hostility, being willing to suffer for Jesus. I don't know about you, but that takes courage. In the same book, it calls us to resist the devil, to stand firm in our faith. But here's the crunch. The gospel never calls us to do so by ourselves. 
the point of the gospel is ultimately it's not up, up to us to win the battle with sin. If it were, we'd fail. And we do fail miserably. We need God's grace to empower and enable us to live for God. So, we'll chuck that one out. What is the core message that we should get then from this narrative? If it's not simply be braver, more courageous, have more faith. To pull up your socks, dust yourself off and try again. Well, I think we begin to understand the message, the true message, the core message, by first understanding the true nature of the battle here. We must understand how this earthly battle scene directly reflects a heavenly battle. This is actually uh, revealed in the exchange of words between David and Goliath. First, Goliath showed this from verse 42. I'll just read that again. It says, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And listen to this. It finishes with this. It says, And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. In contrast comes David's reply from verse 45 I read. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. You see, ultimately this was a holy war. A picture of God's great war against the forces of evil expressed in this microcosm of this smaller battle between David and Goliath. In a very real way, David and Goliath then tells God's biggest story in the whole Bible. Ever since that time, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. This holy war has raged. And this war came to a head some 2,000 years ago when David's descendant, also born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ came to this world. Although we certainly can learn from David's example here, the main point is that we don't primarily identify with David, but Jesus does. Jesus is the greater David, who on the cross strikes the head of the greater Goliath, Satan the serpent we met all the way back in Genesis 3. So, Armed with this key understanding to our passage of how it truly does point to Jesus, we can consider what does God want to teach us today? Although there is much we can learn, there are two key things that I love to focus on this morning, two key takeaways for us today. The first is this. There's a need for us to be aware, beware of Satan's schemes. 
beware of Satan's schemes. We see this in how Satan, in the, uh, in the passage, there's, there's threats, there's his power, and in his temptations. Like that fearsome figure Goliath, Satan is a powerful thro- uh, foe who threatens and wages war against God's people. Uh, in his book, uh, Fighting Satan, uh, just a little book here, uh, the reformed pastor and writer, Joel Beakey, he writes this. He says, Do not overestimate or underestimate Satan. He is not God or even a fallen deity, and he is not almighty. He is only a fallen angel. Yet, Satan is a powerful enemy. John Blanket writes, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, Outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the smartest. And so, as Scripture, the rest of Scripture depicts, Satan really is a fearsome foe. 1 Peter 5.8 depicts him as a lion who devours. There it read and reads, Be sober, uh, sorry, be sober, uh, sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. As such, Satan has been waging war through the kingdom of darkness ever since the Garden of Eden. In every age, Satan has attacked the church. Sometimes you could say that he does it in quite direct ways, through directly persecuting and using military power. Whether it, it was the Roman emperors of old, such as Nero or Domitian, or, Domitian, or modern-day persecution in Islamic countries or communistic countries, Satan directly attacks the church. At other times, Satan indirectly attacks the church through false beliefs and heresy. Conveniently for Satan, postmodern thought these days seeks to dissolve any belief in a spiritual realm, whereby our culture, by and large, doesn't believe in Satan's existence, let alone the existence of God. In this way, Satan is free to continue roaming around, destroying lives, all the while many don't even recognize the source of their struggles. As Christians, Scripture calls us to recognize Satan for who he is. A powerful foe who is opposed to humanity and especially desires to destroy the lives of Christians who abide in Christ. But note his opposition to God too. Six times in our passage, Goliath is said to defy, to defy Israel and God. This is significant, highlighting his total opposition to the kingdom of God. At this point, though, it's helpful and important to ask, what is the source of his power? Why does Satan pose such great threat to God's people, to all people, including Christians? Well, it lies in sin and Satan's ability to tempt us with it. I think it's very easy for you and I to easily point the finger at Goliath as some external source of, of evil and say, here, here's the problem. 
without being willing to turn the finger back on ourselves. In a very real sense in our passage, you could say that there are three or four Goliaths in our narrative. Whether it was Israel's fear and trepidation and distrust of God, or Saul's failure to lead God's people, or even David, David's older brother Eliab's doubt and disdain of David's motives, even questioning his motives as evil, or, of course, the pride of Goliath himself. The point is, God's word highlights the shocking reality that there is a bit of Goliath in all of us. In our sin, we are naturally prideful, at times equally pig-headed and defiant against God. I wonder if you have recognized this in yourself before. Are you willing to recognize this in yourself? That you and I are all rebels and sinners. I think it's also worth noting the particular expression of Satan's temptations that come through in our passage. There is a pragmatic side to it, a self-reliant side to it as well. We see this in Goliath's initial offer for battle. He says, give me a man to fight. In essence, he says, Israel, save yourself. There's no need for all of you to die. Why not just sacrifice one of you who I'll defeat and the rest of you can be spared? If only you submit to our rule. Just give in to Satan and my rule, Satan says to us. My temptations are too strong for you. You will never conquer that nagging sinful desire or habit. Besides, it feels good. And it's not all that bad anyway. You can get okay, get by okay despite it. The same pragmatism and worldliness appears in Saul's response to David. Saul, as you remember, he kits David up with his armor, but this proves excessive for David. It weighs him down and hinders his agility. Saul thinks that the battle will be won through worldly means of brute force and sheer strength of a man. The devil's temptation for self-reliance is a constant and very real threat for us to make yourself out to be your own saviour. Recognizing that you're a sinner is one thing, but what our response to that self-knowledge is another. There is a temptation to try and conquer sin by yourself. Attempting to be courageous like David, just grit our way through it. But without God's help, sin has an ability to conquer and overrun. We can try all the tricks in the book, having an accountability partner who checks in on us, perhaps making a rule saying no alcohol in the home, or restricting, if it's your particular struggle, restricting access to the internet to prevent yourself looking at pornography. But despite our best efforts and intentions, sin will continue to find a way of coming out and expressing itself. Don't get me wrong, these practical means and measures are good things to do, particularly if you have a vulnerability in a particular area. That's just being wise. 
But something more is needed if you really want to conquer sin. Otherwise, in the end, we'll just be left where the Israelites were. Utterly dismayed, fearful, and with a failed heart. This brings me to the second thing that we can learn from our narrative. First, we saw the very real need to beware of Satan's schemes. The second thing is simply trust in Jesus for deliverance. Trust in Jesus for deliverance. As I highlighted earlier, David's primarily, he points us to Jesus, the greater David. And through David, our passage highlights some incredible truths about Jesus and the gospel. Notice first the providence of God in David's deliverance. The battle just so happened to occur near Bethlehem, David's David's hometown. David just so happened to be sent by Jesse, his father, to the battlefield, where he would overhear Goliath's challenge. David just so happened to be prepared through his shepherding role, where he encountered bears and lions. I mean, everything in the story has God's fingerprints over it. We talked about that. Dan mentioned the providence of God before, how God sovereignly works through all situations. And in this way, we see that it is God who brings the victory, not us. The battle is the Lord's. In moments of temptation, then, Satan wants to allure us with sin and distract you with self reliance. But we ought not to first try and be strong enough by ourselves. Rather, we need to trust and look to the one who is strong enough, who has the ability to win the battle. It's to say in those moments, not I, but Christ in me. To say, I hold firm, not to my own self-righteousness or strength, but to Christ's righteousness and strength. In Christ, God has declared me just and right in his eyes, declared clean, unshackling me from Satan and sin. I mean, do you know this declaration of Christ to be true for you? The Satan, sin and death has been hit with a fatal death blow through Jesus. But that's not all. I want you also just to notice something else about this deliverance. How it focuses on past acts of deliverance. You see, David gained great assurance by looking back over his life. And seeing times that God had already worked in his life and delivered him. In a similar way, we too can look back over our own life. And remember times where God has saved us. Maybe there's been a particular time for you or a particular struggle that God's used to strengthen your faith. We could also hear encouraging testimonies from other Christians, fellow believers, How God turned their life around, saving them from a sticky situation or a course of life or simply helping them to keep their faith despite their circumstances. But of course this morning we should think about the greatest past act of of deliverance 
none other than the cross of Christ, the event where Satan was defeated. We think of Colossians 2, perhaps, in, from verse 13, where it reads, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us by all our trespasses, by cancelling the debt record of debt that stood against us with its legal, legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's some incredible verses right there. In the depths of our sometimes severe struggle with sin, when we feel most overcome and defeated by it, remember, Satan and sin are defeated foes. And one day, God's victory will be fully realized when Christ returns. Remember, even in the moments where maybe you give in to sin, and Satan stands laughing and mocking you, that you are still Christ, and Christ is yours. If you truly belong to him, he will never leave or forsake you. Even if for a time you do feel more distant from God because of your sin. This brings me to one final thing to notice. Finally, let's notice the inherent weakness in David's deliverance. David was clearly the weaker man physically, and yet he is the one that triumphs over that mighty Goliath. But where David lacked physical strength, he had access to a far superior strength having God himself in his corner. In a similar way, the cross of Christ is weak, foolish, in so many ways, as a means of salvation. And yet that is the very thing that God has said and chosen to defeat Satan and our sin. But unlike David, Jesus didn't use violence to win on the cross. Rather, he received violence upon himself, literally becoming that one man who sacrificed himself for the sake of others. Wonderful wonderful verse in John 10, 11 says, and Jesus says there, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The next chapter in John 11, verse 50, the high priest Caiaphas, unbeknowing to him, he prophesied that Jesus would do this when he said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. On the cross, Satan exhausted his sword on Jesus, cruelly inflicting pain. But it wasn't Satan's sword that was most painful for Jesus. It was God's own sword, God's wrath, poured out on Jesus that was most painful for him. And yet, despite how hopeless that all seemed, three days later, Jesus defied all the odds and rose again from the dead. By doing so, Satan's sword was turned back on himself 
bringing about his own defeat. And for us here today, that is how Satan is defeated in us. By running to the cross, by believing in Jesus for true heavenly deliverance. And so, fellow churchgoer, what is your response to Jesus then this this day? Are you continuing to defy God in your sin? Rather than doing so, will you defy Satan and and your sin and believe and look to Jesus? By doing so, like the Israelites who plundered the Philistines that day, you will get a great plunder yourself. Knowing God and knowing forgiveness of sin. Knowing God's voice in your heart that says to you, You are forgiven, my child. Come and enjoy my kingdom and eternal life with me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you didn't leave us to all perish in our sin. But you went to extraordinary lengths to save us, to deal with our sin, to atone for our sin, to take that punishment on yourself, to fight and defeat Satan through such weak means and yet such glorious means. Father, we want to thank you for this. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would search us this day. And if there are parts of our life that we continue to still defy you and to say yes to sin rather than saying yes to Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us this day. I pray, Father, for those amongst us who are struggling in sin, those who are just feeling like it is a hopeless battle, that it can't be won. Holy Spirit, would you reveal your grace to them this day? Would you show them that there is a way to defeat sin and that Jesus has provided more than enough to win? And Father, I pray in those moments that we do still give in to sin. Father, I pray that we would just know, come to you again and ask for your grace and experience your grace once more, knowing that Christ's declaration of righteousness stands firm for all eternity and that nothing can take that away. That no matter how far we wander away from you, if we are truly Christ, that we, that will never stop being the case. And I pray, Lord, that uh, for anyone else who hasn't yet considered Jesus for themselves and haven't turned away from their life of sin, that they might truly repent and believe the gospel and see the beauty of what you've done for us and that you are more valuable than anything in this world, that the great plunder that we get is you, Christ. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.